0: Hello, and welcome to Spotlight on Action, produced by the Healthcare Payment Learning and Action Network, commonly known as the LAN. I'm your host today, Aparna Higgins, a senior advisor to the LAN and a senior policy fellow at the Duke-Margolis Center for Health Policy. The LAN Spotlight on Action highlights LAN members' work on the ground to affect positive change in our healthcare system through alternative payment models, also known as APMs. From leading APM adoption to focusing on APM design elements that address health equity and break down barriers that stand in the way of people being their healthiest selves, LAN members are on the front line of the healthcare transformation that is currently underway. We are very fortunate to have Frederick Isazi with us today. Mr. Isazi is the Executive Director of Families USA, one of the nation's leading nonpartisan Nonprofit healthcare advocacy organizations. The mission of Families USA is to ensure that all people receive high quality, affordable, consumer centered care. He's a national thought leader and subject matter expert on the social issues and solutions related to driving value and equity into healthcare and providing high quality coverage, drawing on decades of experience in the healthcare industry, public policy, and law. He previously founded Family USA's National Center for Coverage Innovation to help state and federal policymakers and consumer leaders develop and implement pragmatic, nonpartisan approaches to expand and improve healthcare coverage. He also founded and still directs his organization's Center on Health Equity Action for System Transformation the only national entity exclusively dedicated to developing and advancing patient-centered health system transformation policies designed to reduce racial, ethnic, and geographic inequities. Frederick, I'm very pleased to welcome you to this conversation today.
1: Thank you so much, for It's a true joy to be here.
0: Well, I wanted to start us off today by um, focusing on um, three of the four focus areas or pillars as you call it, and as, li- as described on your website. And specifically the, uh, the three of them are healthcare value, healthcare equity, and consumer experience. So I was hoping you could elaborate further on each of these areas, including you know, why you selected these areas as your areas of focus, um, but also what specific goals you seek to achieve.
1: Terrific question. Thanks so much, Aparna. So uh, as you mentioned, Families USA, we've been around for over 40 years and our mission really is to ensure the very best health and healthcare are equally accessible and afford- affordable to every living soul in our country. And uh, these are three of the key pillars that we work in. So the first, um, as you mentioned, was is healthcare value. And for us, at the heart of what value is really about is first and foremost, making sure that the healthcare system all of the resources that we have in this country directed towards health care really do result in improved health for all. Um, so it really is at its heart about reorienting the system all the way towards health, not just simply units of health care. Uh, and then making sure that in seeking care and uh, in, in trying to care of oneself, one's family, it really is affordable, that it's something that isn't uh, creating economic instability for families, um, that's allowing families to really thrive and live to their full potential in our society. When it comes to health equity, it's really acknowledgement that we have some very deep and pervasive inequities in our health, in our society, and in our healthcare system that have resulted in some pretty terrible outcomes um, for uh, different populations in the country, folks who live in rural America, um, but in particular for uh, communities of color. And um, so a lot of our work is focused on trying to surface what those inequities look like. You know, things like, for example, that in this country right now, um, the African-American babies who are being born are twice as likely to die during childbirth than their, uh, their white counterparts, right? That's, this is a country that was really built on the premise of fairness. Um, there's something so fundamentally unfair about that. So uh, it's about surfacing those kinds of inequities and then developing solutions that really can drive the entire system uh, to allow for the for these populations to thrive um, alongside of their, uh, say, white or, um, or urban dwelling uh, counterparts. And then the last area you said uh, you mentioned was consumer experience. That's really important to us. And we are at our heart, we are trying to bring forward the interests of all families in this country, and in particular some of the most vulnerable. And what we've learned through our experience is we are constantly working with policymakers, either you know, in the US Congress or uh, in the federal administration and then we also do a lot of work in state capitals around the country uh, and with governors and in all of that work what we've learned is that um, some of these issues can become incredibly partisan incredibly politicized there's nothing at all that can cut through all of that rhetoric all of that partisanship better than the experiences of individuals and families trying to seek health right when, those, when we can bring people forward and they can talk about, for example, um, you know, the, a history in their family of, um, right now we know in this country that if you're African-American, you're 50% uh, more likely to die prematurely from cardiovascular disease, right? Um, just another example of the kind of inequities we have in this country. And um, when somebody comes forward and actually tells that story, what it's like in their family to watch uh, the older folks in their family dying early, that cuts to a lot of the rhetoric, a lot of the partisanship and really speaks to our values as a nation where we really believe every single family, every person should have a shot at their best life possible.
0: Great. Um, well, thank you for that great overview. Obviously there's a lot of work that you're involved with. Um, so I want to um, you know, sort of even zero in further on the health equity issue. And you gave some examples of the stark differences between communities of color and the white population. Um, and mentioned some of the solutions you think that could help um, address that issue. So, could you talk a little bit more about your um, Family USA's efforts to help advance health equity and reduce disparities in this country?
1: You bet. So, this is uh, one of our most important focus areas. Um, we're very, very busy. We've got a lot of work going on. You mentioned, um, you know, uh, myself, along with really terrific staff at Families, uh, we created the National Center for Health Equity and Value that is a really important effort. Uh, And it's one of the things I think that is uh, often most misunderstood about the value uh, effort. We are true believers that um, this country, we're not suffering from a lack of resources. We're we're suffering from a healthcare system that is responding to the wrong incentives, that um, isn't being given the tools that it needs economically to really uh, ensure that it can drive towards Um, the health of its, uh, make sure the patients are healthy and families are healthy. And a lot of times when when I'm in these conversations around value, folks will ask me, well, don't you think, for example, that if we're improving the quality of care for all people, that that's going to be really beneficial to some of the most vulnerable folks and particularly communities of color. And what I want to say there's, I've had a lot of experience in this working with, say, uh, in previous uh, you know, lives working with directly with health system executives or working with governors. And what's very uh, what's very evident to me is that a lot of the effort around value is about finding standard population of risk and de-escalating that risk um, and really creating better health outcomes for those folks and reducing the cost or the spend for those populations, right? That's kind of the the overarching uh, philosophy on value reforms. The problem is that a lot of the populations we're talking about the most vulnerable folks out there, they may not fit a standard population. They may have dimensions in their life that are very uh, different than uh, traditional middle-class families, for example. And for that very reason, what I actually watched was a lot of leaders in the value space working pretty hard to figure out how to keep them out of their value efforts so that they didn't have to deal with that uncertainty and that variation. They wanted to create the most standardized population possible. Well, you know what that results in? It's, it's not just that we aren't addressing the needs, we actually making these disparities worse, right? So the Health Equity and Value Center really stands for the notion that we have got to get extremely intentional about addressing health inequities and bring them into the center of the healthcare transformation enterprise and not just assume that things will get better just simply because we're making it better for everyone. Um, that's one example of, of very deep work we have going on. We also have uh, a health equity and values academy where we bring together leaders from around the country, particularly leaders on the community level, um, to teach them about the opportunities in healthcare. Learn from them about what's going on in their communities and help empower them to change the policies in their either their communities or their states around healthcare care value and equity. Uh, we also have a big effort going on around early childhood. And addressing some of those fundamental early experiences, um, particular adverse childhood experiences, that there's a lot of research shows can really set a trajectory for, um, for, for a human being through their whole life. Uh, we have one project going on in, in the District of Columbia focused on uh, finding sustainable ways to pay for nurse family partnership, for example, to really give moms and babies and dads the support of a nurse family partner in those early years to really get their kids off to an early start. Those are just some of the examples of the deep work we're doing.
0: Okay, great. Um, uh, that's actually really helpful in terms of some of the detail that you provide, and obviously you're doing incredible work, you and your team, I should say, yeah, are doing absolutely. incredible work in this area. Um, I, I guess, the, as you know, the LAND recently established the health equity advisory team um, to help identify and prioritize opportunities to advance health equity through APMs, influence design principles and inform land priorities and initiatives. Um, its goal is person-centered. So I think that aligns with, uh, you know, your own organization's uh, mission. Uh, and uh, to leverage APMs, since you were talking about value, to help make needed care more accessible, drive better uh, patient outcomes and reduce disparities. Um, obviously you've talked about a lot about your own work. Um, and so would be interested to hear uh, you know, from you in terms of how you view the alignment between the work that Families USA is doing and, and the land initiatives and goals?
1: Well, I, I'm really proud of where the land has been going on this issue and how hard they're working towards raising both um, the importance of APMs and the importance of addressing health equity. Um, I think it's really powerful work and it's been, a, it's been a real honor to be a part of it. Uh, I think a couple really important concepts. Um, First, I think that as we've talked about, um, the idea that land is trying to make health equity central in the transformational enterprise is really important for the very reasons we just talked about. Because if we don't, it's not just that we won't make them better, we're gonna make them worse. Um, But the other thing, I think one of the things that's most exciting is at its foundation, some of the most bold uh, alternative payment models, APMs out there are really about collecting the resources in a community, in a state, uh, that are provided for healthcare, right? And that could be through uh, federal Medicaid dollars, it could be through Medicare dollars, it could be uh, through private insurance, state employees, right? Collecting those resources, um, building a community table, uh, which includes insurers, hospitals, physician groups, but it also includes social service agencies, housing supports, Uh, we've seen, for example, uh, mental health services, behavioral health services, all at that table, right? And they look at their data for that community. What's really going on here? What, do, Where do we really see the opportunity and the real problems for, for achieving health in this country or in this community? And then they really start to set targets for themselves about how they can change um, the way in which the resources are being utilized to achieve the goal of health, not just simply units of healthcare. Uh, that's a really really powerful idea uh, it's a really transformative idea mm-hmm. and when that happens you see really tremendous reforms that are very innovative happening things like addressing unmet behavioral health needs addressing housing and security addressing um, violence in communities the impact of systemic racism things like that it can be really powerful so i think at its heart apms and the work of the land and the land is really pushing hard to say we have to go much further in reallocating these resources um, in other parlance by developing much stronger risk-based models, right? Right. Um, That is really exciting to us at families. I think is the key, uh, one of the most important keys to addressing health inequities.
0: Okay. Um, So you talked earlier about, you know, the work that you're doing through the center in terms of being intentional, uh, intentionally designing uh, ways in which to address health equity. And as you think about the intersection between APMs and health equity, could you share your perspective on what it means to intentionally address health equity in the context of an APM?
1: You bet. So uh, first and foremost, I think uh, you got to start, and I, we, I did a lot of this work uh, previously with the National Governors Association in states and state Medicaid programs. Where a lot of the most exciting stuff is happening. Um, you got to start with data, right? So first you've got to get into a community and really surface the best data sys- sources and understand what's really happening. Um, and what we've seen in, in, uh, in many different states, and these are red states and blue states, urban states and, and, and rural states, it doesn't really matter. Once you start looking at your data, you start finding some really interesting patterns. For example, um, in one uh, in one state we're working in, they found uh, that there was a massive over of ER services in a very vulnerable community, right? So uh, that became a, so- a focal point. Well, how do we address this? Why is this happening? So first, start with your data. Second, it is really about bringing together the full community uh, set of resources. So not just a hospital, not just a physician group, but really thinking about all of the resources that can address not just physical health, but the social determinants, behavioral health, all those sorts of things. And then third, that using data, you set real accountability targets. How are we going to improve outcomes? How are we going to reduce uh, the wasteful spending? And in the example I was just giving you, in that in- instance, um, they determined there had been a clinic that had been operating a primary care clinic in this community, it was shut down about five years before because people weren't really using it. But it turned out people weren't using it because it was only open during work hours. Mm -hmm. They reopened the clinic, they provide uh, after hours and late hours. Uh, They reduced spend by about $15 million in one year when this clinic was open and the outcomes went through the roof because people had access to primary care when they weren't at work when their kids, you know, for example, also on Saturdays and Sundays when kids, you know, the weekend hits and all of a sudden uh, you realize your kid's got a fever or sick, all those things, you start dealing with those problems and these vulnerable communities' health really started to improve. So that's an example of using data, bringing the community together, and then really monitoring with accountability metrics, uh, the improvement in outcomes and reduction in wasteful spending. Okay,
0: great. Well, it almost sounds like a nice playbook for people to follow in terms of- That's So right. some of these goals. Um, so uh, we've talked a lot about health equity, the intersection of health equity and APMs uh, and the importance of you know, having these alternative ways of paying for health and healthcare, as you said. Um, so I, I was curious if you could actually elaborate um, you know, even more on efforts that you're undertaking to advance APMs, you know, Families USA, obviously you focus a lot on consumer experience and some of the other pillars you talked about. Uh, but could you talk you know, more about your efforts to advance these kinds of alternative payment models?
1: You bet. So let me give you two examples, one on the federal level and then one on the state level. So we do a lot of work with Congress and the, and the federal administration um, of whatever party to really think about how do we continue to evolve APM so they really have impact. And I think one of our biggest pushes in that regard is focused on um, trying to achieve much better alignment across multiple payers, so that uh, the models themselves hold much more economic uh, uh, power, meaning much more the book of business of a hospital or physician group is aligned around population health and they can really go for it. Um, And I think we've been big advocates, both on the Hill and in the federal administration to find ways to really um, unleash the power of APMs by providing a lot more risk, a lot more of a book of business associated with the global payment, right? That's a really important principle to us. Um, we are doing a lot of work. I think you know, th- this is uh, maybe not super sexy uh, for a lot of folks, but actually maybe to our viewers, it would be. Um, and that is, uh, we've got to do a much better job of collecting race and ethnicity and gender, sexual orientation and geography in our healthcare data, mm-hmm. and then reporting it. Because one of the things we know is, you know, the COVID pandemic has certainly taught us that um, when stressors are encountered by our system, the people who pay the price more than anyone else are people of color. In this country and so, um, but we only know that because we can look at the data and find the places where the system may be failing, and we are right now, you know I would say we're probably 20% there in terms of really collecting. And making those data available for us to understand what the problems are I think that's it's foundational we're working really hard on that as well. Um, And then on the state level, uh, we do a lot of work with state Medicaid programs, we just had a very deep project for several years working with state partners in California. Uh, to really think about as they go, you know, as states go back to CMS to request say, a new uh, Medicaid waiver, 1115 waiver, um, or series of waivers, how can they build equity into their waiver design? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it's everything from ensuring that there's culturally competent care, they're really thinking about the workforce, how are they developing a diverse workforce? We know that's really important to get getting to, to better health for, for um, diverse communities. We've also did a lot of work around community health workers and thinking about how do you build much stronger linkages between community members and the folks who are delivering care to them. Um, so, so we we do a lot of work on the state level to think through what are the Medicaid policies that can be adopted that can result in much more equitable distribution of health.
0: Okay. Um, so maybe building on the theme of connecting, you know, the um, providers of care with the people that they're serving, uh, would be interested if you could talk more about um, how do we ensure going forward that as we design APMs, they truly embrace the con- consumer or the beneficiary. We all talk a lot about person-centered care, right? But how do we ensure that we're truly placing the beneficiary or the consumer at the center of design and, and meeting their needs? So it would be yeah. in hearing your perspective on that.
1: Well, I have, you know, we have a lot of restrictions on this. So, and we I couldn't agree more at the heart of this, what we're really talking about fundamentally is intelligent design, right? It's the lessons of intelligent design. When you were trying to redesign a system, we have to put the end user into the center of the design enterprise or else we end up designing something that doesn't, you know, uh, often you hear things like, you know, you built a car, there's no steering wheel. Like it, you sort of, you miss really important things when you don't have that end user right in the center. Um, So that's such a foundational principle. Uh, But I also think it's interesting because I've been a part of a lot of policy efforts to try to change, for example, the statutory or regulatory framework around uh, healthcare payments. And there's often a drive to bring consumers into that effort. It can be really powerful, but let's be really clear. Sitting down, uh, putting a Medicaid recipient down next to a hospital CEO is not gonna result in a really uh, fruitful exercise, right? there has to be really a lot of intention and thought put into how do we empower consumers' needs and interests to come forward and how do we provide technical assistance to policymakers so that the consumer's needs are coming all the way into the regulatory or statutory process, meaning it's not just simply a conversation, right? It's surfacing the needs of the community, talking to the community about this, finding out where their interests are identifying priorities that align with the community's priorities, not the governor's priorities or the president's priorities, but the actual community's priorities. But then doing the hard work of finding out, well, okay, let's say in this community, it's unmet behavioral health needs, right? They've identified, wow, we we have so many folks in our community who either have substance use disorder or severe and persistent mental illness, and their their needs aren't being met. Well, at that point, you got to start doing a lot of hard work to explore around the country. Well, how has this been solved before, right? That's not... Asking the consumer to solve the problem—it's mm-hmm. about really providing the technical assistance to find the solutions and bring them into that new state, that new regulatory framework. So that's a really important distinction. I think sometimes you see people say, "Well, the help, the Medicaid beneficiary didn't tell me how to solve that problem. I, I throw my hands up, right?" And that's a that's a pretty um, fruitless exercise. But then, you know, once you've really set up the regulatory framework um, and the and say the payment structure then it really is about intelligent design. It's about, as you're thinking, for example, about behavioral health integration. Have you brought the patients who you're trying to reach into the design enterprise, right? Have you talked to the, the behavioral health providers in that community who are working in the community mental health center and working in the primary care setting about how integration should occur, right? So it really is, that is the place I think where uh, deep involvement with community members, with the, prov- the direct service providers, can really transform what the payment deal reform looks like.
0: Okay. Um, so speaking of um, you know, bringing solutions that have maybe worked in, in one community to, an, to another community, um, could you talk a little bit about, and we you know, hear a lot in healthcare about um, success stories, right, right. Um, and those are very important. But I'd be interested in getting your perspective in terms of how do we scale those success stories? Because as you talked about, you know, bringing learning from one community to another, um, you know, what is your perspective and what efforts are you taking to help sort of scale some of these successes? Sure.
1: Yeah, and I would say you know um, there are some really powerful success stories, particularly around health equity and trying to address these vulnerable populations. Um, And it's not a long list, right? It's a really powerful and it's a pretty short list. So one of the things we know for sure is really important is Uh, addressing unmet behavioral health needs. Mm -hmm. It's an incredibly powerful set of interventions. uh, And those come in a few different flavors. I can talk about that more if you want. The second is um, really thinking about the role of primary care and empowering primary care to both coordinate the needs of vulnerable uh, populations and also help direct patients to the highest value care providers. Those are two of the most important flavors you see there. The third is addressing Overutilization of emergency room services, which of course is really expensive, really wasteful. It doesn't really often result in any improvements in outcomes, and that can often be about working hard to understand access problems, where people cannot, can, and can't get care. Mm-hmm. And you know, for example, the, the example I was giving you um, in in the, in one community in the in the north, um, it was about realizing that. What this community was a primary care clinic that was open late after hours things like that. In other instance, there was a wonderful effort in Washington State. ER utilization really ended up focusing on unmet substance use disorder and all of the um, utilization that stemmed from that. So there, you know, that's other example. And then finally, uh, transitions in care are really important. So for vulnerable populations, making sure they're going back to their follow up appointments, making sure that they're um, they're being there's a lot of there's wraparound services to make sure they can go through the process of recovery and end up uh, coming out with good outcomes. And then the very last uh, example I always point to is housing insecurity and um, housing first and using housing as a health care intervention. Incredibly powerful. Um, and we know there's millions of examples of very vulnerable folks who are accessing a lot of health care. But because they're housing insecure, their health just gets worse and worse and worse. And by bringing those two things together, their health needs and their housing needs, you can really transform their lives and you can actually reduce the overall spend for those people. So those are examples of the actual interventions that can really make a difference in the lives of the most vulnerable and really address health inequity.
0: Okay, so building on the um, social determinants of health, um, you talked about housing insecurity, for example, as one you know one of those determinants. Um, and it, could you share your perspective on how APMs could be structured to help meet some of those? you know, social determinants of health. You mentioned earlier about how currently the APMs are maybe more designed for standardized populations, but you have a lot of vulnerable people that are getting left out. And these vulnerable people have, you know, social risk factors and and have social determinants that need to be addressed. So um, could you share how APMs could be more intentional in terms of, you know, melding health and social services together?
1: Right, absolutely. And, you know, that's, uh, I think, you know, going back to our earlier conversation, that really is focused on allowing for the resources, the dollars flowing into a community to be, come together um, and to be examined as, uh, as sort of one resource available for the whole community. Um, one of the best models that I've seen of that is the Oregon Community Care Organization model, a CCO model, where um, literally the healthcare dollars flowing in for Medicaid are provided to this community table right, of both hospitals, providers, but all of the other social service agencies. And with data, they can figure out what are the social determinants that are being unmet. And then they can start allocating healthcare dollars towards those social determinants um, in a way that really truly they're measuring impact and can say, you know, we have reduced overall costs and our outcomes are are, are getting better and better. So that fundamental model, the, the CCO, accountable care, uh, accountable community model is really powerful. Um, I think the most important social determinant interventions that we're seeing are things that are aimed at unmet behavioral needs. There is no question we have a crisis in this country. You know, we know, for example, that um, right now, if you're African American in this country, you're 50 percent less likely, and 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 you have mental health Ill- illness, you're 50 percent less likely to get it than your white counterparts. Right? It's an example of it's very hard for all people to get access to behavioral health in this country. But then when you're uh, African-American and, and if you're a person co living in rural America, it's even worse, right? So um, unmet behavioral health needs are really, really important. Housing insecurity, really, really important. A lot of issues around substance use disorder that, could, uh, that we could do a lot better with. Um, and then I think that there's even deeper questions about environment, um, things like um, the impact of clean air and clear water, the impact of systemic racism and violence, and then going all the way as we were talking about earlier to the very first experiences of little children, of little babies as they're born, the world they come into, um, the amount of care they have in just the first couple of years can be transformative, right? So these are all examples of the ways in which if we can reallocate resources to address social determinants, we can really change the life trajectory um, of an individual. Great.
0: Um, so we've talked about a lot of very important issues, and it's been great to hear your perspective. and, and uh, Thank you for sharing a lot of your uh, learnings. Um, so, as we look ahead in terms of the evolution of APMs, as you called it um, earlier, um, and as well as um, you know the importance of intentionally addressing health equity, um, could you maybe uh, summarize some of the key learnings as? You know, policymakers and others are thinking about these issues, and payers and providers are thinking about these issues. Could you share some of the key learnings that would be important to keep in mind as we look to advance APMs, but those, especially those that are intentional about uh, about addressing health equity?
1: Sure, I'd say the first one is one I know that that the land has been working on very hard, which is underneath all of this. What we have to recognize is that economic incentives drive. The, the behavior of providers. There's no way around it. And we have to be really honest with ourselves about that. And I've worked a lot in uh, with hospital CEOs and, and CFOs and, and chief medical officers. And um, behind the curtain, no one's confused, right? Everybody knows that uh, this is a volume game for high cost proce- or high margin procedures. Uh, and that's what we're going for, right? And so underneath all of this, the number one thing I would say is, policymakers have got to understand that honestly policymakers created the incentives inadvertently for -for fee-for-service sort of treadmill economics and policymakers have got to unwind this and really drive towards a model that aligns the financial interests of people with the providers they're serving because I would say right now that in many instances providers are trying to do their best despite the way we pay them right we pay them one way and they're just working really hard to try to do what's right for their patients, even though they could be losing money by doing that. So it's a we've got to align those two things. That's most important. And, and to get there, we have got to give providers a much larger percentage of their book of business focused on the APM. It's got to be 80% or more of their book of business in real risk-based payments. Mm-hmm. Because when you when you get into that kind of environment, you see unbelievable change. Um, And one of the things that really inspires me about that is when you talk to the individual providers in these health systems or physician groups in these uh, health centers, they are incredibly excited about this. And this is why they went into the practice of medicine. Um, They wanna do what's right for their patients. They're tired of that treadmill of patient, 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 procedure, procedure, procedure. So there's a lot of within the community of providers there's a huge, I think um, there's excitement and there's a lot of enthusiasm for this. That's one. Two, I would say, that um, remember that as we talked about earlier, inequity will not be addressed by passively just improving the system for all. We really have to be intentional about equity and understand what are the interventions that are gonna most affect the vulnerable communities of color that are being left behind right now. And the third thing I would say is, and to me, this is a really hopeful thing. um, I have done this work in the most rural states, the most urban states, the bluest of states and the reddest of states. And the truth is so much of this work is really about reallocating resources to meet the needs of a community and to empower a community to come forward and um, identify and work on their needs. That is wildly popular in all of those different environments. You know, like We did this work in Wyoming. We did this work in California. It was wildly popular in both because at the end of the day, when you devolve to a community level, it resonates with people from all kinds of different perspectives. So I think there's also a real political future here. This could really happen because it isn't partisan. It isn't, you know, it isn't about um, you know where your starting point if you're a Democrat or Republican. It really is about I want my communities needs to be met, which is a very, very powerful, very American kind of perspective. Great.
0: Well, Frederick, thank you so much for sharing your perspectives with us today. It has been extremely illuminating. I've learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners. We'll learn a lot too, and I've really enjoyed speaking with you.
1: Thank you so much, partner. It's been an honor to be here. And to you and to the land. thanks for all the hard work. To all the folks who are watching this, you guys are out there working really hard with the vision, and we at Families USA are there to support you.
0: Thank you all for joining us. If you enjoyed this conversation, please keep checking the LAN website for more on our Spotlight on Action series that will highlight the work of our members. This and future spotlights will also be posted on our social media. So be sure to follow us on Twitter at payment underscore network and on LinkedIn by searching for Healthcare Payment Learning and Action Network.